Hello and welcome to How Do You Solve a Problem Like? This podcast meets people that have creative solutions to some of society's toughest problems. And if this is the first time you've found us, then welcome. We're very happy to have you with us. I'm Millie. I am a radio producer and a new fledgling social entrepreneur. And I'm Anna. I work at Unlimited, helping businesses like Millie's and others to scale their impact. This week, you're joining us for our final episode of the series where we will be looking at how do you solve a problem like homelessness? So I guess it's interesting in contrast to our last episode where we were talking about period poverty and there was some sense that actually that problem might be solvable. What we've got here is a situation where the social need is growing. So it's fitting that in this episode, we're also thinking about scaling up to have a solution that works at small scale and then actually to make sure that that spreads and that you can help more people. And what are the different challenges that you might face at this stage of your business? I had the great pleasure of meeting two incredible social entrepreneurs. Kamal is a serial social entrepreneur with a background in business who has scaled at phenomenal rate with Change Please. I have mentioned Change Please to a few people and as soon as I say Virgin Trains, they go, oh yeah, oh I know, the coffee on Virgin Trains. People might have seen the tagline, literally life-changing coffee, it kind of in a soundbite says what he does. He started working in partnership with The Big Issue to employ homeless people into barista roles in coffee carts. That comes with a much larger package of support to really help them transition from homelessness into full-time employment and full-time housing. And here's a little clip of Jamal, who we're going to be meeting in just a few minutes, talking about that Change Please partnership with Virgin Trains. Companies are built up of humans who care, and it's about finding the right person and presenting them the right opportunity. They really believed in what we did, and they've launched us in 77 trains nationwide. They spent 300,000 to half a million pounds advertising us and they've seen a massive increase in their sales as a consequence. The second entrepreneur we'll be meeting is Meg, who founded Fat Macy's, a catering company that employ young people and helps save for a deposit for their own house. She was inspired when she was working in a youth shelter herself. I was just so shocked by how hard it was for people to move out of the hostel. I started running cooking sessions. It had this really great energy. So I thought in street food and all of that, people are looking for something different. Could we use their food and recipes and interesting cooking as a way to help people get deposits? So let's talk about the problem of homelessness. Even if you've not personally experienced it, you would have had some experience of walking past somebody in the street, feeling maybe motivated to help, maybe feeling wary of that person. It's a problem that I've seen noticeably increase in the past few years and I've always been very motivated to help but never really known what I can do. Yeah, exactly. I think it is one of the most visible symptoms of the problems we have in society at the moment. We walk past people so frequently, we become desensitised to it. And I think that is really troubling and disturbing. If you think of yourself as a good person, how can you walk past someone in such desperate need? What we're talking about there is rough sleepers and whilst that maybe is what most people think of when they hear the word homeless, that's only a very small part of the picture. 
Homeless Link looked at rough sleepers just in England and the figure for 2017 was around 5,000 people, which had doubled since 2013. Looking at homelessness more broadly, so that includes people in sheltered accommodation, temporary housing, for 2018 in Britain, that was 320,000 people, which basically means that one in 200 people in Britain is homeless. So Jamal is an incredible example of someone who's been very successful within the social purpose business world. He's set up multiple businesses. He has an international presence now and visibility. He hasn't had lived experience of homelessness, but he was someone who had a very strong background in business. And I think that's one of the real keys to his success. I met him at his very first social enterprise that he set up six years ago in Peckham, the Old Spike Roastery. And I asked what inspired him to get started on his journey of social entrepreneurship in the first place. It's twofold, really. One is, wherever you are, you see that problem of someone being out on the streets. You want to help, but those stereotypes and prejudices jump into mind about are they really going to spend it on getting themselves out of the problem or are they going to spend it on drugs or alcohol and then you continue walking past that person. That's something that didn't really sit well with me. I used to work in a city. I kind of started to realise there's got to be more to life than just making money, building assets. My partner at the time was in Vietnam and we went to this silent tea house, which was a tea house set up by deaf and mute ladies. They didn't have any other opportunity in that village. They came together, created this really beautiful tea house. And that was the first time that I'd realised actually you can do business and good at the same time. And then the idea of Change Peace came to me. Came back to London, I saw a homeless person with a cardboard sign saying Change Peace. And then that kind of really sat with me. And I was like, right, that's it. I'm going to call it Change Please. I'm going to go back to work, uh, have my notice and leave my job and then start this amazing thing. The next step was understanding what social enterprise was. I was looking on Twitter and the algorithms must have been working good on that day, so it brought up a school of social entrepreneurs advert. I applied, got accepted, and I learned everything about social enterprise. That was six years ago, and I set up the roastery, which is where we are now, not knowing how to roast coffee. And before I'd bought a coffee roaster and spent £25,000 and set up this whole business, I drank probably two coffees in my whole life. Do you drink coffee now? Yes, I do. Out of market research and also for quality control. Don't overly enjoy it, coffee generally, but that's not nice chocolate. <laughs> but don't let anyone hear this. What about when you first started working with homeless people? How did that start? We were kind of very close to opening our spike and we were working with a lot of charities to kind of find relevant people. I wanted at that point to really show some proof of concept. Every day when I was walking to the School of Social Entrepreneurs to go to the course, there was a lady who was selling a big issue magazine called Lucy. I was like, right, I would want her to be our first person. And then she came to our spike to do a coffee training session and everyone just fell in love with her. She was such a warm, beautiful person. And that was our first experience, which was probably sheltered from reality in a way. I thought that going out to find people who were rough sleeping and offering them a job was all that people really needed. Three and a half years later, I realized I couldn't be more wrong. Our model now 
supports people with a stringent pre-assessment. We pay a living wage. We provide housing in 10 days, a bank account. But most importantly, the thing we provide is therapy support. So this is all done in-house. We've got our own occupational therapist, clinical psychologist. And whatever the reason is that you became homeless, if you're not tackling that underlying challenge, people will start getting back into the same routine as they were before. And that's what we were noticing. So is it fair to say you were a little bit naive about the complexity of homelessness before you started? 100% naive. And in a way, I wouldn't have changed that. Because if I knew what we'd have to go through to get to where we are today, I probably wouldn't have done any of this. So Lucy was your first kind of success story. What about after that? So after that, we started to structure a bit more our offering. I brought somebody in from the charity sector who had experience of working people that were homeless and we were opening new locations and finding more people. I think the biggest challenge was bringing in too many beneficiaries, trying to do too much impact. And actually, that's how we would have failed. So it has to be that balance of the enterprise and the social, maybe 5-10% with the impact and then the rest financial and then start to swap it around the other way over time, which is where we've been quite successful from a commercial perspective. So tell us about some of those amazing commercial accounts that you've won. When we started to sell coffee into some really big players, it started to prove the concept works to big caterers. I mean, we just had an email from probably the world's biggest contract caterer asking to have their senior leadership team come to Peckham to negotiate with us about having exclusivity in the US. That's just insane. We have our own coffee sites that we operate in partnership with the Mayor of London and TfL. Historic coffee vans, sites in corporate offices that we operate. We have coffee in supermarkets where we sell our retail bags. We then have sites with corporate partners where we sell wholesale coffee. So that's a corporate partner like UBS or Barclays where we'll have a coffee bar that's run by a catering company. And then finally is what we call our brand partnerships. So that will be with a Virgin Trains or a big gym chain, which we're about to announce, or with a Virgin Atlantic where we're supplying coffee on every Virgin plane and every lounge globally. Did you face any barriers in that and people kind of being slightly wary of the association with homeless people? Oh, absolutely. The biggest challenge that we have in defeating the problem of homelessness is that perception around homelessness. You know, if somebody's walking past somebody in the streets that's homeless, if you were to then see that person serving you coffee a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, that helps to humanise that person and change the way they're seen. So let's talk about how you scaled, because obviously you have scaled massively and any kind of challenges that you've faced. You need structure to do that. You need to have a team big enough to do account management. There are preconceptions that social businesses are going to have a lack of quality based on the fact that they've got another element to their business. It's already difficult to be a large coffee chain in the first instance. If you add a whole other element of your business model to then help a beneficiary group, especially difficult as homelessness, anyone in their right mind is going to think that your focus and attention is not going to be as focused on coffee as much as a large high street chain is going to be. So therefore, there has to be some sort of compromise somewhere, whether it's quality, whether it's price, whether it's account management service. You're already at a disadvantage from being a social enterprise when you go to try and dispel those fears. What's so exciting is that we've built up that track record and proven that's not the case, 
we grow very rapidly within those organizations and those partners. But it's getting over that initial hurdle, proving the concept, proving the quality. What I would always recommend is just getting your foot through the door, starting people on a trial and showing people it works, and then really developing that relationship as much as possible. Are there any sort of risks with always having this founder story at the center of your organization? When you're growing quite quickly, you're then jumping from being an entrepreneur to, to, to being a CEO very quickly. I was doing a talk for um, the NatWest SE 100 in Scotland, and, and I, I used that opportunity to kind of write a list of the, the attributes needed to be an, a good entrepreneur, attributes needed to be a good social entrepreneur, um, some of the other roles that you need in between, whether it's in a CMO, a CFO, you know, and then ultimately a CEO, which is what you're kind of thrust into. And the attributes and skill sets that are required for each of those stages are pretty different. And just because you've set up an organization as a founder doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great CEO. It's difficult to do all of those and to be everything. And you, there needs to be a period of significant self-audit and reality in that process of, of being a founder and understanding that, you know, I know that in the future, the scale that we're growing, I'm not for sure going to be the person who leads the organization into the next 10 years, you know, maybe the next two, three, four, five years. So um, that reality is empowering because it means that I can bring people in who can fill the gaps that I'm not good at, but also help me plan for the future. When I've spoken to people about Change Please, people always know it from the Virgin Trains. I suppose that created a huge amount of visibility for Change Please. How did that partnership come along? Through serendipity, companies aren't just one big block entity. They're built up of humans all through the organization who care. And it's about finding the right person with at the right time and present them the right opportunity. And we found the right person, she found us actually. They really believed in what we did and wanted to get behind what we did. And they've launched us in 77 trains nationwide. They spent 300,000 to half a million pounds advertising us on everything from tube adverts to radio to magazines, newspapers, and they've seen a massive increase in their sales as a consequence because now they've got something to talk about from their coffee offering. Which is actually genius because coffee on trains is the national shame and is like known for being absolutely awful. If you've got a really good product with an amazing story, then that's going to absolutely transform the way people see coffee on trains. Yeah, so that, that's coffee on trains. I'll quickly talk about coffee on planes. I'm actually flying to LA to do a press release with Sir Richard launching our Virgin and Atlantic coffee. What's so great about the planes is that at the end of a plane journey, you often see a appeal for offering your spare change to charity. And you feel guilty that you haven't given your spare change because you don't have any spare change. You use it all up at duty free on the way. Now that video will be saying the coffee you've been drinking has gone to help and then it shows videos of the people or farms in Brazil that Virgin Atlantic fly to and show the impact. So you're changing that dynamic from being about guilt to about happiness. And Virgin Atlantic and Virgin Family and all the other partners that we work with have teams and hundreds of people in those teams just dedicated on customer experience. And that change of customer experience from a guilt feeling to a pride and a happiness and a warmth, that's what the power of social business has to be able to give that feeling and experience to a consumer when they were just going to purchase the thing they were going to purchase anyway. I, 
I've actually been to Old Spike Roastery myself and I took a couple of friends and it's really nice to have a social enterprise that is so accessible to the public. What I think Jamal's done really well is just help people understand why social purpose business is important, why it's effective. The coffee is damn good. So actually both my friends left there being like, oh, I'm really interested in this place. They do really good coffee and I want to know more. And I love that he said the number one thing we have to change is perception. And the problem was more complex than he first initially realised. But that, in a way, was a gift, as it seems to be with many of the social entrepreneurs I've met throughout this series. A lot of them do walk in a little bit naive. As someone who's worked with people trying to do this transition from you've got an idea, it's proven successful, you've managed to get it to a certain stage, and now you're having to take that next step. What I liked from his reflections was that actually it takes different skills and you might not have all of those. So you might be a great person with a great idea and you've got the enthusiasm to get it a certain way. And then you need other people around you and you really need to think about, do I still want to be involved? Am I excited by the next phase of what my business could look like? And he was saying, be really honest with yourself. Can you do it? You'll probably be able to do parts. You might have to go back into being an entrepreneur. You know, he set up several businesses, so it's not that he stopped being that entrepreneur and started being the CEO. I think people underestimate how much of an emotional experience it is. Yeah, and that must be quite challenging because I think being able to delegate on something that you're incredibly passionate and emotionally involved with, which you're going to be because, as we know from this series, you don't start a social enterprise unless you feel pretty passionate about it. The number of the people that I've met throughout this series say actually asking for help is the thing I would have told myself to do at an earlier stage because it's hard to let go of your baby. Yeah, and it's interesting because on the flip of that, what if you're ready to take a step back, but you're so linked in with the image and the brand and people see you as the company? How do you extract yourself and say, no, no, my team are now capable. You're not dealing with me, but that doesn't mean that you're not dealing with change, please. How do you keep that story and empower others to tell it for you? One of the things that both Jamal and Meg have in common is that they see more benefit to work than just earning money. The beneficiaries that they work with get much more from working, from being valued, from being part of a team, having a purpose each day than just the wage step that they take home. But one of the catch-22 situations that you might not realise unless you've actually kind of had first-hand experience of the system is that actually you might not have the option to work because it might mean that you lose your benefits and if you're in a hostel or supported housing, therefore wouldn't be entitled to that shelter anymore. This was one of the biggest frustrations that Meg saw as someone who was new to working in homelessness and hadn't experienced it herself and hadn't experienced the system before. She was so appalled at the situation and that's what inspired her to start. Almost because I went in knowing nothing about the industry and the sector, I was just so shocked by how hard it was for people to move out of the hostel. So in my sort of naive mind, I thought... Homelessness was a problem of people being on the streets and getting them off the streets, but that's just one very small part of it. When you work in homeless hostels, you realise that there are people that have been street homeless or they have been sofa surfing or whatever it is, and they get placed in a hostel, but then it's really hard for them to actually make the transition out of the hostel. A lot of people would keep explaining they were stuck in this catch-22 where you can't move out, can't save any money. So the average stay in homeless hostels is around two years. But some people I met had been there for sort of six, seven, eight. 
cooking was a really great way of engaging people that maybe you didn't see so much around the hostel. I started running cooking sessions upstairs in one of the hostel kitchens. It had this really great energy. So I thought with street food and all of that, people are looking for something different. Could we use their food and recipes and interesting cooking as a way to help people get deposits? And that's where it all began. So what was the next step after that? I was looking at setting up a food business. I have no background in food whatsoever, so that was interesting. We started by doing one supper club. I suppose I sort of thought, right, if this goes wrong, it's just a sort of bizarre dinner party. <laughs> and if it goes right, it could be the beginning of something really great. I had three of the trainees from the hostel. We'd come up with a menu and we just invited friends and family. They all paid, I think, something like 20 quid to just get a three-course meal that we'd cooked in this cafe. Against all the odds, it went really well. There was that feeling where you just think, OK, this is going to work. And you could tell everyone was really excited in the kitchen. The cafe that we'd hosted it in actually gave us a ring and said, we're looking at doing Supper Club series. Would you want to take a month? Which was quite a scary moment because you think, A, I'm not a chef. B, we've just done one event. But we just thought, why not? And that was sort of the real test of would this work in practice? Luckily, it all went pretty well. And it's sort of slowly grown from there. Can you explain to me the journey of the trainees that you work with? Yeah, of course. So essentially what happens is we go into a hostel. We run a five-day training academy, which gives people really basic skills in catering and hospitality. That course ends with the level two food hygiene qualification that you need to work in any kitchen. We then offer them a trial shift in our business. And then we ask someone to do a 200-hour work experience placement. But they don't take home any money. How is that sustainable for them? So... I suppose the model has been designed to ensure that we're not employing anybody so that we don't affect their benefits. Fundamentally, the reason that we operate like that is so that we can save on their behalf because without doing that, there's no way that they can build up reserves. And so, yeah, I suppose it's a question we get quite a lot because people sometimes feel a bit funny about it, but it's absolutely clear to our trainees when they sign up. We explain the whole sort of process. If you sort of see it as a training opportunity, it's like an amazing opportunity to to get real-life work experience working with really great chefs, and it means that we can provide them with references when they then move on to get their own jobs later. We invite them along to events that we run where they'll either be working in the kitchen or front of house. And every hour that they do, we save the equivalent of about £10 per hour that sits in a housing deposit fund that sits in our charity and that builds over time. The idea being that by the end of the programme, they've saved enough money that they're eligible to apply for as a grant that they can then use for the housing deposit of any flat. Emmanuel was the first person that we worked with that did that. We found him a flat in Enfield that he moved into just before Christmas. He was just so excited. It's a really big move to go from living with 150 people. I think that was a bit of a shock, but he's doing really well. And I suppose for us, it was just that moment of realising that it does actually work and that it really has a tangible benefit for people that we're trying to support. So what have been the biggest challenges for you as a social entrepreneur? For me... I didn't know anything about homelessness, I knew nothing about food, I knew nothing about business and so it's been a real learning by doing process. It comes with many hours where you sit there thinking I've got no idea what I was talking about and I'm just sort of winging it but somehow you sort of get there. There have been so many people supporting us along the way from so many different organisations because 
it's sort of become, I suppose, a bit fashionable, social enterprise. So it's sort of the right moment to be involved because anything that we don't know how to do, we've managed to find volunteers that have sat with us and helped us work our way through it, which has been great. I guess there's so much dissatisfaction with things going on politically at the moment, austerity and all that, that people have the power to vote with their money. So if they buy a service or buy a product from a social enterprise, they can feel that they are actually contributing to positive change. Yeah, definitely. I think we really notice it in the catering side of the business. There's been a real shift to businesses wanting to support social enterprises instead of going to Pratt or Benugo, they'll come to us. I was going to ask you about the quality because you said Mm -hmm. that you don't have a background in food and you're working with brand new trainees. How do you get the quality up to a standard that could compete with people who have been in the business for years? Yeah, definitely. Quality is really important. And I think especially in the early days, there was this reticence. You'd get people emailing, but you could tell there was this uncertainty about what the quality of food would be like. Since I stepped away from the food side and we've hired this amazing chef team, so we now have a culinary director and two chefs who've all worked in amazing restaurants. So you said you started off with just one supper club for friends and family Mm -hmm. and now you're employing other people. You're looking into getting your first permanent home. What has that process of expanding been like and what are the things that you've had to consider throughout that process? Scaling a social enterprise, you're always thinking about both what's right for the social impact side of your business, but you're also obviously thinking about the fact that you're a business and profits and margins and all of those things that you're supposed to think about. So for us, we've had great opportunities that would have been amazing for scaling, but would have been wrong for our trainees. And so you're always having to sort of think about that and maybe turn down offers that financially make sense, but impact wise don't make sense or vice versa. In a way, I think it makes for a better business because you really have to consider every option and every decision really, really carefully. We've now been running for three and a half years, doing supper clubs and then also doing catering. But I suppose we realised very early on that it's really hard to cater without a kitchen. So we're looking now at opening a permanent venue down in Peckham, which will be our sort of first home and where we can base all of our activities out of. What really struck me with Meg, what she was saying about how as you scale, you have to consider both your business and your beneficiaries. And those two things might not necessarily go in tandem. There's an interesting social enterprise called Ignition Brewery. They sell beer and all the beer is brewed and bottled by disabled people. The founder had an opportunity to scale and he was saying, actually, that would mean that I wouldn't be able to keep the model and the employment that I have for the guys that I work with. So what I would rather do is stick to this scale and be an inspiration to others rather than grow the business myself. So he is looking at different replication models. Can he get others to replicate? You could think about social franchising, which is another method of spreading your idea or more informally just inspiring others. Whereas Chamal has obviously gone down the route of he will work with people at scale. (laughs) Yeah, quite. Yeah, because for Jamal it works out well because he felt that his skill didn't lie in that hands-on role of helping the beneficiaries. But if that really is where your skill lies and you don't want to be separated from that and you don't want to become a CEO of a big international corporation, 
then yeah, you could kind of provide some kind of template and kind of inspire others and help others. And actually, that's how the Riot Girl movement was. They basically kind of sent guidebooks for how to have a girls rock camp and organising to get more women into the music industry. So there you go. Yeah, I think it's important, as Jamal mentioned, that you might need different skills. It might also be that you realise I don't have those skills or I don't have that passion, but that doesn't mean that my business can't grow. So these are our final, final reflections for this series. We're going to hopefully be back with another series. And I've learned so much in making this series and I hope that you've learned something in listening too. That's you, the listener, not you, Anna. <laughs> I know, I know. I know you know everything already. <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously I know everything. I think there's been some really interesting themes that have come up across different people with different experiences, whether they've got lived experience or not, whether they're early stage or not. They're still grappling with the same kind of questions around how do I justify being a social purpose business and manage social with business, which doesn't always sit easily with people. And then, as always, I'm just so reassured that as many daunting problems as we have, we have so many great people out there solving them. Yeah, absolutely. If you've had any thoughts about the subjects that we've discussed in this episode and would like to talk to us on Twitter, we would love that. And also, please do hit us with your suggestions for future episodes. There will be another series. We're not sure when yet. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you at a problem like on Twitter. Thank you to Chamal and Meg for their interviews and thank you to you guys for listening. If you want to check out more info on the people we featured and the businesses that we mentioned, then all of that can be found at aproblemlike.com. If you liked what you heard, please do give us a review on iTunes or share it with your friends, colleagues, loved ones, enemies, whoever. We'd love as many people as possible to get on board the social purpose business bandwagon. So can you help us to do that in any way? It'd be greatly appreciated. We hope you have a good few months and we'll hopefully see you again very soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.